0: Well, we're on part 11 of our series on the book of Ephesians. It's been, a, it's been an awesome series. I've just enjoyed this time. It's made me want to go deeper in the book of Ephesians than ever before. And uh, so we have this week and then next week, and, uh, and we'll come to an end. And then just a couple more weeks, and we're going to be merging. Oh, my gosh. It's really happening. And I just preached the Wednesday night service Uh, this past Wednesday, and Gabe is gonna preach the Wednesday night service this Wednesday. And so the merge is on, it's happening. And so April 22nd, we will be together. Well, uh, let's go ahead here and look at the outline, Ephesians 5. Today, we're gonna talk about uh, marriage, family, and our jobs, because in this section, what Paul does is he takes the application of how to walk in love and he applies it to marriage, family, and jobs. He transitions from how we're to walk in love in the church to how we're to walk in love in this most important theater of our lives uh, with those that we're around the most. And, and the reason why I believe that Paul emphasizes this, this portion of scripture as it relates to you know family and marriage and, and, and how to walk in love Is because I feel like it's one of the key, if not the key, way that our love life and our Christianity is is born out. It's by the, it's by uh, walking it out with those that we're with the most. And I've said that multiple times, but I, I feel like we can't get that enough. Like if if you're not real with your family, it really doesn't matter who you are in the public. And so this is why Paul, I think, goes deep in this because. In those places where we're around those people the most, our our, our spouses and our children and our parents, that's where the uh, the reality of our Christianity is born out. So now there's a couple guiding principles that Paul gives us in Ephesians five. That if you if you don't get those two principles, you kind of don't get what he's talking about. And so, as it relates to walking in love, Paul he gives us these two crucial thoughts that really set the stage for for the rest of what he's going to tell us. And so I mentioned it there in B. Now, the first principle, he says it twice in this chapter. And it's just simply this, that we're to love others. And the way that we do that is by giving ourselves for them as Jesus gave himself for us. Now, that might sound like a simple thought. Sure, we just love people the way Jesus loves us. We just give ourselves for people the way Jesus gave himself for us. But I propose that that is one of the most <laughs> ambitious thoughts for a human being. Because we don't want to give ourselves for others instinctively. We want to give ourselves for ourselves, instinctively. We want to look out for number one. And, and we want to take care of self first. And so what Paul does is he dials in the idea of love as, and in terms of as love is manifest through us. And he says, at the core, love being manifest through you is about you giving yourself for others. Now, in verse 2, he makes a broad statement, and he basically just calls all of us to lay our lives down for other people. And then in verse 25, he speaks specifically into the marriage and addresses the husbands and says, good, you want to get married? Great, you're going to the cross, which is what I love to tell people in premarital counseling. And what tends to happen is this, a young couple comes in, bright-eyed, and They're all romantic and snugged up with each other, you know, a little bit, and going to have some premarital counseling. It's going to be so nice. And I start talking to them, and I go, so everybody's going to the cross. And they go, "Uh uh-huh. I go, I don't think you heard what I said. Everybody is going to the cross. I mean, between y'all, both of you are going to the cross. And and somehow in their mind, they go, right, we're just going to go worship Jesus at the cross. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. You are both going to the cross in that you are going to get on the cross. You are going to lay your life down for each other. And when we get specific with it and we get clear about it, this is the point that, that really love wants to take us to, that we would actually lay down our lives for others. And specific in marriage, that's where this thing has got to go. If love for us equals, it's going to be good for me. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to enjoy what I want, when I want. If that's love in your mind, you don't know what love is. Because love, like I've said before, will always reduce you to love. And what that really means is love will reduce you to pouring yourself out for others. And that's why Paul gives it to us so clearly and so cleanly, he says in verse two, you gotta love others as Christ loved us and laid himself down, a sweet-smelling sacrifice and aroma to God. And then verse 25, he says, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself for her.'" Amen, sister, amen. And so here's the point, at the core, when it's love, when it really is love, it will call you to give yourself for the person you love, okay? Now, we are confused with romance, we confuse romance with love, and we think love is like chocolates and flowers and nice dates and candlelight and smooth music and uh, you know, some sort of romantic comedy. And we think love is about what makes us feel good. And, and ultimately, there is a, a deep pleasure in love. But here's what I find is that most people, when they first, especially young folk, when they first start getting connected romantically with someone else, they feel so good. They love how the person makes them feel. They love that the person makes them laugh. And instead of it really being about them saying, I, I love you, they, they're thinking it like this. I love how you make me feel. I love that you make me laugh. I love that, that you're, you're so good to look at. I, I, I love all of this about how good it is for me. And thus, I love me <laughs> instead of I lay my life down for you. And most people, young people, have that mixed up. They think love is about how good it makes them feel rather than this is going to ultimately cause me to lay my life down for someone else. That is the critical first thought that Paul gives in this chapter. It's a a, uh, guiding principle for love. Love will bring you to the place where you will lay your life down. The second thing he gives is verse 21 and he gives it under the banner of love, and verse 21 gives us the the broad thought by which we get the next several sections, and it's submit to one another. And here's the deal. Love will ultimately cause you to prefer someone and not yourself. It will cause you to defer to another and not have your own way. It will be Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who who didn't consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant and became obedient to the point of even death. Now you tell me this, how does the one who is life itself, he is eternal life, Jesus Christ is life, he became obedient to the point of death by submitting himself. He humbled himself to his father's will, and he submitted himself to death itself. And here's the deal. In marriage, there are going to be times where we lay ourselves down in love and we submit ourselves to one another, and that's just how this thing is going to work. That's the two guiding principles, not just for marriage, for family and child raising, and for how we go about working in our occupation and our job. In fact, if we can keep this concept of love as a governor that, that is the rudder that shows us how to live and how to, how to operate and how to act, and it's laying our lives down and, and operating in subjection to others, all of a sudden what happens is we begin to experience the favor and the grace and the blessing of God. Because now we're not acting like just a human flesh. We're acting like Jesus himself. Come on, don't go quiet just because I'm preaching real good now. The thing about it is, we don't recognize how different love is to our human desires. Well, you know, we want to be loved, but this outflow of love where we give of ourselves, that's not native to, to our fallen nature. And so it requires the grace of God. It requires the love of God in us to be able to be manifest through us. And so when Paul gives us these governing thoughts, man, they're serious. It, it really is going to be a, a transformational um, you know, activity that happens inside of us. Now, here's what he does. He, he describes in these different environments uh, the, the relationship between husband and wife, the relationship between parents and children, the relationship between boss and, and workers. And, and he's, he's depending on the environment, he shows us what giving our life and what submission looks like. And so he gives us details about each one of these specific relationships. So we're going to go through the first part of chapter six. Now, another key concept that Paul gives us, and you can't You just can't teach this portion of scripture unless you highlight what love is and then you describe what Paul gives us is this term headship, headship. Everybody say headship, headship. Headship. And so what Paul describes is in the marriage that the husband is the head as Christ is the head of the church. Now that is such a critical thought because it gives us Really, the ground rules of how a marital relationship is supposed to work. Now, the first time we see uh, Paul even talking about headship is, is we see it in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And I, and I put that right there in your notes. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't put out the text there, but I, I want to just read it to us so that we understand, because this is the same author, it's Paul talking to the church at Corinth, but so that we understand when Paul says headship, what is he referring to? Where is he getting this? What is the idea? And so 1 Corinthians 11, verse three, he says this, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Now in this context, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's specifically talking about the marital relationship. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. I think a lot of times, you know, people have taught this thing where they go, that's right. Man is the head of woman. Now you woman, you just do what I say because I'm the head. And that is not at all the, the context or the flavor that Paul is trying to give. In fact, what Paul says is Christ, as the head, laid himself down for the church. So in a marital relationship, here's this interesting thing. Headship ultimately means you humble yourself first, you repent first, you lay yourself down first, you love first, you forgive first, just like Jesus did for the church, Come on. Amen. Headship isn't, man, I'm in charge. Bring me a cold one. Got to get this final four on here, March Madness, you know. That's not headship. That's nothing. That's called being a slug. Headship is you lead in likeness in the family. You give yourself like Jesus did, that's headship. But what stuck out to me is the way Paul presents it in 1 Corinthians 11, he even gives us this other little piece of information that I think is oftentimes forgotten. He says the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. And so when Paul is thinking about headship, the very first relationship in view is the Father and the Son. Now, beloved, that to me is a shocking thought and it's a definer of what Paul is talking about maritally. Let me me express it a little, little more specifically. Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. Three separate persons in one, one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so you have this unusual, you know, uh, makeup of the Godhead. We call it the Trinity, where they're co equal, co existent, right? Co powerful. They're all God, all three, and they're one. They're united as one. And what We find out in in the scriptures, there's different ministries and different administrations within the Godhead, but all three of them are on par with one another in terms of their eternity, their knowledge, their wonder, their majesty. But there's this amazing thing going on in the Godhead. Though they are all co-equal, there is an assignment of headship, I started thinking about this, blowing my mind about how Jesus, who's co equal with the Father, co eternal, creator, the Bible says multiple times everything was created through Jesus Christ. Yet, the Father, Clear Isabel, is head over the Son. And so, what you see is this dynamic humility in the Godhead where the son, though he's co-equal with the father, has taken a a position in authority in the Godhead just beneath the father. And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he would say things like this. I only do what I see my father do. And I only say what I hear my father say. And then you see Jesus praying in the garden. And Jesus says, okay, not my will, but yours be done. And it's so unusual because they're equal, but the son has positioned himself just beneath the father. Now, the way that the headship works in the Godhead is it's unthinkable because here's what the father does. He goes, that's right, son, I'm the head over you, and I'm giving you all authority in heaven and earth. So Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and earth. That's what Matthew 28 tells us. Here's what happens, though. Fast forward when every demon is bound, when Satan himself is cast in the lake of fire, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this, that Jesus will then take everything and hand it back to the Father, that the Father may fill all in all. What's the point I'm trying to make? I'm trying to make this, that there's headship in the the Trinity and the Godhead, there's headship and there's unity, and there's intimacy, and the point is the headship, the authority that's established there, in no way diminishes the person of Jesus Christ. In no way it subjugates him. There's an authority line in the Trinity that Fully allows Jesus to become who he's supposed to be. In fact, this whole time we've been preaching on the book of Ephesians, we've been referencing chapter one where it talks about knowing the hope of Jesus' calling. Oh, see, you don't, do you know where I'm going with this? Husbands as the head in the family, we're gonna find out in the text. Their job is to see to it that their bride comes into the fullness of her calling. Glory to God. This is how headship actually works. It's not primarily about you do what I say. I can command you this, that, and the other. No, because the issue of love already governs the concept of headship. Do you see what I'm saying? He already laid out in in verse two, and then he's gonna say it again if you didn't get it, in verse 25, that laying down your life is actually inherent in headship. So as Christ is the head of the church, as the father is the head of Christ, the man is the head of the woman in marriage, but that whole package is governed by love that lays itself down and ultimately brings the bride into fullness of her calling and identity. Amen. Amen. This is what Paul's teaching. Now, so often people just read little verse, you know, fragments here and there, and they say, no, 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 the man is in charge. And I would just tell you that is an incomplete way that this is, that that the Bible actually teaches as it relates to uh, authority in the home. I will say this. There is absolutely headship. The headship is male. But being the head means you have to be like Christ. First, you have to love first. You have to lay yourself down first, and you're ultimately giving yourself unto the fullness of your spouses, your bride's calling coming to pass. Mm, Amen. So then lastly, this, Paul's gonna summarize marriage in this way. He's gonna actually do this whole teaching on marriage, and then he's gonna say this, but I'm actually speaking about Christ and the church. So in that, there are so many thoughts, and, and, and it, it's just powerful because when we see the application of a human marriage and the way that love is supposed to work in a human marriage, that entire interaction is supposed to teach us of our relationship with Jesus himself. And, and in fact, here's the deal. It was God's idea For the son to have a bride before there ever was creation. Remember, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the reason why he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is because the dream of God to have a family, the dream of the son to have a bride was already in play from everlasting. The Bible says he loved us with an everlasting love. Okay, and so here's the deal. This concept of human marriage, the whole Adam and Eve in the garden and every subsequent generation where men and women are being married in covenant love together, all of those transactions of marriage all the way back to Adam and Eve, they speak of one eternal truth and it's the desire in the heart of Jesus Christ to have a bride who he lives in intimacy with forever. Oh, praise God, guys. Every marriage, every wedding is a testimony of Jesus' desire. Every covenant that two people enter into, to to have and to hold, in sickness and in health, till death do its part, every covenant is supposed to speak of the eternal truth of Jesus' desire for his people, for his bride, that they would be joined forever and ever. And man, this marriage thing then, it becomes so much more amazing and glorious and shocking because every single husband and wife is supposed to be a testimony of Jesus' desire for his church and the church's relationship to Jesus. And so that's what Paul gives us there at at the last part of chapter five. All right, now let's just begin to work through the text, and I'll tell you right now, I'm not gonna be able to get to all this. I'll do my best, but I'm not gonna rush through just to get to the finish. Some of this you can read on your own. All right, let's look at verse 21. Now again, I said last week, and I'll just say it again, I think this whole section comes under the banner, I said it earlier today and I'll just repeat it, that this whole section comes under the banner of submit to one another in the fear of God. And then he shows us how this submission works in marriage, in family, and in our jobs, all right? So let's read verse 21, we'll read through 33. Submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ. husband. Amen. All right, so again, the first point, A, is we submit to one another in reverence to God. And this is the way I think it plays out in a marriage. I think, and the way I see it, is that there's mutual submission. And the way that I would explain it is this. In my marriage, and in every marriage, the, the man is the head. That, that never changes, but there are gifts and talents in my wife that are different than my gifts and talents. There are abilities and callings in her that are different than my abilities and callings. And so when I see those areas of giftedness in her, I simply defer my leadership to her. So when it comes to running certain areas of our family, certain areas of our life, it's my wife's call. And she said, this is what we're gonna do this is when it's going to happen, and I say, yes, ma'am, because I don't have giftedness in that area. Now, there's other areas that I do have giftedness in, and those are the areas of the family that I run, but the way that we work it is there is a a mutual environment of submission one to another. Does that mean that I ever forego being the head in the home? No. I'm, I'm always still the head. I'm always still you know, expressing Christ, loving, serving, giving, blessing, looking out and taking care uh, for our family. But I recognize the gifting in her and I, I call her into that by giving her those areas of leadership. So I submit to her leadership in certain areas and she submits to my leadership to govern our family. So that submit to one another, I see it as a banner that, that covers the entire family Now, he's going to go on and he's going to say, now, wives, submit or be subject to your own husbands. And he says, the husband is the head of the wife, as we've already described. This this issue of headship never changes in the home. Some people get this confused and they use verse 21 but they forget this issue of headship, and they go, see, in the marriage, it's mutual submission. It's really like two people in charge instead of one head, and I would say that's completely false as well. There's an entirely, uh, I would say, false idea of marriage that's an egalitarian concept where they, they see both husband and wife as equals, and then the marriage is sort of split how each one of them offers themselves to the marriage. And I'd say that's completely false. There's headship that governs the marriage. The husband is the head. The wife is to be subject to the husband as the head in the same way that Christ is subject to the father, in the same way the man is subject to Christ. There's a unity in headship. There's a beautiful unity in headship. And there's a governance of love as it relates to the entire relationship. And so Paul just teases that out. He says, now the the right authority in a home is the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so he says this, as the church is subject to Jesus, so the wife should be to the husband. Now the problem is this, oftentimes in the family, we don't have the head acting like Jesus. And so then it makes it very very difficult for the wife to subject herself you know to the husband as the head because he doesn't represent Christ. And that's where a lot of the challenges in marriages take place. Not all of them. There's times when you have a husband who's acting like Jesus and the wife refuses to subject herself to it. I've seen it all. 25 years almost of of ministry, and I've seen virtually every kind of challenge you can have in a marital relationship. The, the point comes back to this. If people aren't willing to humble themselves in submission and to lay themselves down in love, marriages will disintegrate. And it's a difficulty. What Paul lays out for us is how when you humble yourself in submission and you give yourself in love to lay yourself down, how the proper authority, how it works hand in glove, And the two who are one operate in a beauty that reflects the glory of God that's found in the Trinity. And that's how it's supposed to go for us. And so he says, just like the church is subject to Jesus, wives are to be subject to the headship of their husbands. And so the husband is now given this, this opportunity to reflect Christ in the family. And so then he goes and he says this, now husbands, love your wives like Christ love the church. Now, guys, if there was ever a sentence in the Bible that you need grace to do, it's that one. Going to love her as Jesus loves the church. Okay? Like, you just made it impossible. You've just defeated me, Lord. Why? Because he's perfect, and you and me are not. And so we're going to goof this up a lot. Isn't that right? which means we need to ask for forgiveness a lot. Amen. Amen. So when he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, he puts you immediately in the crosshairs of grace. The only way this is gonna work is grace, man. The only way you're gonna lay yourself down over and over and over again is the grace of God. It's not in your human frame. It's not in your flesh. It's not in your mind. This isn't what you wake up in the morning thinking, boy, today, I just want to go to the cross again. (laughs) Just the thousandth time. I'm just, glory to God. I'm going to just, yep, just going to go crucify everything I got. Uh Uh-huh. No one thinks like that. And so it's only the compelling, constraining, controlling love of God inside of a man and the grace of God empowering the man that enables a man to actually lay himself down the way Paul calls him to. Wives, subject yourself to your husband as the head. Husband, lay your life down as Christ laid himself down. And then he explains why. He says, to help her grow in sanctification, when you lay yourself down for your wife, you're helping her to grow in holiness. And then he says that she would become glorious without spot or wrinkle. Your, your calling as a husband is to lay yourself down and see your wife grow into the gifts and the callings of God that's in her life, that she would be radiant, that she would be glorious. I, when, I, when I am talking to a, a couple, and I'm looking at their, their marriage, and they're asking me to, to, to look at their marriage. All I've got to do is just look at the wife and see how much glory is on her, and I can tell how the marriage is going. Because that's the husband's job to help her become glorious. If she ain't looking so glorious, we might have a problem. Doesn't always mean it's the man's problem. <clears throat> Doesn't always mean it's the man's problem, but if there isn't this sanctifying thing happening where she's becoming more holy, she's becoming more godly, and she's expressing more glory on her being, we probably have a problem in this marriage. Am I making sense? And then the Ozonese says it again. If you didn't get it before, get it again, guy. Love her as you love yourself. Wait a minute, love her as I love myself? That's right. The way you'd look out for yourself, instead now, look out for her. Give yourself for her. Lay yourself down for her. And then he says, as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, that's how we're supposed to do it as husbands with our wives. What does that mean? That means we are pouring into our wife whatever means we can to help her to grow. It doesn't always mean that, husband, that you go home and you're doing the Bible study with your wife. In fact, I would advise against that quite often, actually, because you'll always have the verses you think she has to know, and the Lord's got 17 other verses that he's not even, you know, you're not even thinking of that he really wants to get in her. Sometimes, you know what it means, husband? That you pay for her to go on the retreat without you. Glory to God. A little spiritual enrichment. And, and the point is that you are going to do whatever you can to nourish her faith, to cause her to grow, to be like Jesus, to cause her to grow up in the Lord and then cherish her, cherish her. I love that verse. I love that word because I think about Jesus cherishing the church. It means tenderly care for, tenderly care for Jesus Tenderly caring for the church. Husband, tenderly care for your wife. Amen. And so he says now this, and he's quoting now from from Genesis where God first lays down the the rules. He says a man shall leave his his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. And so he says you got to leave your father and mother and be joined to your wife. And some people were like, well, yeah, duh, I, I definitely wanted to but I would just tell you that some of the biggest challenges I've ever seen in marriages is, one of the parties doesn't leave. They don't leave and cleave. They try to stay connected to the parents and cleave to the spouse, and that doesn't work. Amen. Be a parent who allows your kid to leave when it's time for them to get married. Be that parent that blesses them into their marriage. Don't be that parent that's calling 17 times a day to find out every little detail of every little thing and every little conversation. That's not your role. Your role is to help them to grow so that they can be well-married to someone else. Your child is not supposed to remain married to you. Amen. Leave your father and mother, be joined to your wife. The two shall become one flesh. That is an entire theological discourse. The two shall become one flesh. There is a mystical union that takes place between a man and a woman when they covenantally vow together and then they consummate that marriage. There is a mystical union by which the two become one. And it's it's not... Uh, It's supposed to speak of the unity of the Trinity, and it's supposed to speak of the unity of Christ in the church, and that is absolutely a shock, and I love to tell couples this. You know, the miracle of a wedding ceremony, the miracle is this. The two people, they confess with their mouth what they believe in their heart, and it happens. You know, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus. We believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we shall be saved. With the mouth confession is made. The heart we believe unto salvation. Well, that principle is how the covenant works in marriage. We say with our mouth, I will be your husband. I will be your wife forever. I covenant in this And what we love to do is we love to serve the couple communion, ratify it with the blood of Jesus, and then it's consummated on the marriage night. But in that whole process is a miracle. You don't see it happen, but the joining of the two, they become one. Oh, my gosh, beloved. And so when he says, the two shall become one, this is a mystery. This is beautiful. This is shocking. And then Paul drops the bigger bomb, and he says, and this is what Jesus and the church will experience forever and ever and ever, amen. Which is why I love to say, if it's going bad, don't worry, because you're not at a wedding yet. Because in a minute, we're all gonna be at a wedding, and in that wedding is gonna be Jesus, our bridegroom, and we're gonna be the bride. You can keep going through, because we're all going to the same spot, we're going to a wedding, amen. So then he summarizes, he says, now listen, if you didn't get anything, let me say it again, husbands love your wives, wives honor and respect your husbands, amen. All right, Ephesians 6.1, let's just touch this real quickly as we're getting ready to close. So now he's going to take the principles that he gives us for husband and wife, and he's going to apply it to children and parents. So he says, now, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And what he's doing right there is establishing who the head is. The parents are. He's, and he's putting the submission toward the children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. So he gives instruction to both sides in a very, very similar way that he does with husbands and wives in marriage. And and, and here's what he says. He says, for children, you have to be obedient to your parents. He goes, one of the 10 commandments actually tells you this. Now he calls it the first commandment with promise, but how many of you know which commandment, just curious, just a little Bible trivia, which commandment this actually is? It's, I'll give you a hint. It's not the first of the 10 commandments. Wait, somebody said it. Five, it's number five. Thank you. Wow, that was fast. Five. It's just quick. It's the fifth one. But it's the first one that has a promise attached to it. That's what he's saying. Because this is the first one that's got a promise attached to it. And the promise that it may be well with you and you'll live long speaks of the favor of God and the grace of God on your life, children, as you obey and submit to your parents. Amen. And here's what we find. If you just look at life, when you see rebellious kids, rebellious people, you know, that whole rebel without a cause, you know, that whole idea so often, and it's just, it's just horrible, but so often people who give themselves to rebellion, their lives end early because of this spiritual concept. They die because they're not properly aligned under the, the God-given headship. And then he gives in verse 4 a word to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke them, bring them up in the training and the discipline of the Lord. Now, what I find is this. So often parents, they give a heavy-handed approach of discipline and training to their children that it actually ends up provoking the child to anger. And that's the exact word that Paul He he, he counters that and he says, that's not how you love your child and lay yourself down for him, which remember is the governing thought of all of these relationships. And so parents are to love their children as the the Lord loves you. And here's what I've come to, to believe, that the first job of a parent with the child is to delight yourself in your child. Because a parent is to express the heart of God to your kids, to enjoy your children, to enjoy who they are, to love them, to to not provoke them. Are you supposed to train them? Yes. Are you supposed to discipline them? Yes. But those aren't the first impulses. They're supposed to be a sense that your child knows you love them. Come on and they sense that you enjoy them. And from that place of of delighting in your child, enjoying your child, then you train them in that just like God trains us. Does God ever fly off the handle at us and and just start yelling at us? Does he ever do that? No. Does he ever discipline us in anger? No, in fact, the Bible tells us that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And so the way that the Lord disciplines is through love, and that's what parents are called to do. Now, I will just tell you, as a parent of three teenage boys, this is so much easier to preach than it is to live. (laughs) Just being straight up honest. Because some of you are like, oh, right, so you just only love and you never get frustrated. No, I definitely do. And when that happens, I have to take these verses into account where it says, don't provoke them. Don't do something to them that's going to cause them to fire back in anger. That's going to cause them to want to rebel. And so I have to center myself with the Lord, find out again, again, ask him, how much do you love me? Now I can love them and allow that to govern my training and my discipline, my instruction and my correction. But parents, I'll tell you when we lose, we lose when we discipline, train, and correct without love owning our heart. Amen. And so that's where a lot of stuff goes bad and goes wrong in families. I would just tell you this, above everything, have a relationship with your kids, That's not based on instruction and discipline and correction. Have a relationship, just like your relationship with God is based on love. Have a relationship with your kid that's based on love, where they know you love them and you are flowing back and forth in love together. All right. Last bit. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. We'll just read this. I'll make a few comments and we'll close. It says, bond servants... Be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to get uh, to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also in heaven is, also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So we have this servants or bond servants or workers side of this, and then we have this masters or superiors or bosses side of this. And what he does is he gives instruction to both again, just like in the family. Now, with the servants side or the workers side, he gives us incredible thoughts on how you will receive blessing in your job. If you'll look at this and apply this to your workplace, man, I just look at that and I say, yes, that's the way it's supposed to go. And so he says, now you that are workers, he goes, obey what the the boss says. He goes, do it with reverence in your heart and, and do it with sincerity for God. In other words, I'm gonna follow what the boss says in reverence of Jesus and in sincerity, I'm not going to just put on a front. I'm going to do this for real because I'm connected to the Lord. I want them to see that uh, I have a, a master that's in heaven that's even over them. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve well uh, as to Christ. And, and, and he says, not with eye service, as a man pleaser, but as a bond servant of Christ. And that's, the, that's this thing that he's setting up because wherever you work, Work heartily as unto the Lord, which is Colossians 3. And so he's saying, this will cause you to have favor and blessing from the Lord. And that's what he says. Verse 8, he goes, "Uh, uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord. Man, if you could get this down. I know, listen, I've heard every kind of story about work. I get it. But if you could get this down that I'm going to serve at my job in a way that reflects that I'm not just serving a human, I'm serving Jesus, and that I'm working as unto the Lord. Man, Christians should have the best reputation at the job. Their work should be the most excellent. Why? Because we're not working just for men, we're working for Jesus. One of the things that grieves me is when I have Christians say, they'll say, I don't want to hire, like maybe they've got some work to do around their house or something or something in their yard or some kind of, you know, they got some, you know, kind of job that needs to get done. They say, I don't want to hire another Christian because another Christian won't work as hard because they know I'm a Christian. Beloved, if you're a Christian and you're serving somebody in the church, listen, You work as hard as you can. Don't expect a buddy deal. Right? You work as hard as you can. You serve that thing as unto the Lord. You really go do that thing. I've had so many times where the one believer goes, I don't want to do it with another believer because they're going to try to take advantage of the fact that we're brothers. Beloved, it should not be that way. There should be a more, a more excellence about us as believers, whether we're serving at our job, or another believer, and serving in the church. Come on. I mean, our, our, our attitude should always be that we're serving as unto the Lord. I'm not doing this for just a, a, another person. I'm doing it for Jesus. And then he goes on to say this. He goes, and if you're a boss, if you're a master, he goes, you do the same things to them. You serve them. You, 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 you govern them as if you were governing the Lord. That's the attitude that Paul tells. Govern them. Do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In other words, the no partiality means this. Just because you're the boss doesn't mean that you're going to get an easier Go at it on the day of judgment is what he's actually talking about. Now, this passage is interesting because he starts off with bondservants. Some some translations say slaves, bondservants and masters. And what you have is this conversation of slavery. He says, whether slave or free. And what's he even talking about there? He's talking about primarily in the first century, the the concept of indentured servitude where people would have debts and they would sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debts. And so in the church, you still had people that were paying off their debts. But here's what I, I did some research and I found out. Paul's thoughts on indentured servitude and slavery in general ended up forming the basis by which slavery was eradicated in the Roman Empire. And I know this. I know in colonialism that you had these passages where the, you know, the, the history shows that you'd have these slave owners that would point to these pas- uh, passages and say, see, slaves, you gotta do what I say. But that is completely not what these passages were about. These passages were about the, the ones that were the bosses or the, the masters actually serving and loving and blessing those that were the bond servants with a heart of love, just like in the other areas of life. In fact, it, this, these passages formed the foundation by which in the Roman Empire, like I said, slavery was eradicated and it, it ended up actually seeing the Roman Empire come down. It was one of the major reasons why. And so I, I just hate when I see that history of, of slavery being... Uh, uh, you know, they, they use these passages to sort of say, well, the Bible is for it. No, the Bible is not for it. The Bible actually forms the foundation by which slavery was dismantled. Amen.